discussion on living in purity. I want to read 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 2 through 8. Or verse 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despises, despises not man, but God, who hath given us uh, is his Holy Spirit. What do we need to live a pure life? Let, let me give you very quickly four calls out of that passage that establish the fact that God wants us holy. First of all, in, in verse 3, he, he says this, for this is the will of God. God wills your purity. He wills that your heart is pure. He wills that your mind is pure. He wills that your life is pure. Everything about you represents His holiness. As He says, be ye holy, for I am holy. It is God's will. Number two in verse four, that every one of you should know how to possess His vessel in sanctification and honor. I want you to accept personal responsibility for your vessel. For your body and its members. Personal responsibility. I don't want men blaming women or women blaming men or youth blaming youth. We want to take personal responsibility for the purity of our body. Are you willing to accept personal responsibility? Number three is in verse six. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such. Impurity is robbery. That word defraud. Remember this. You and I, when we sin, when you, if you as a man, if you look at pornography, you never sin alone. You never sin alone. You rob your wife of sexual purity. You rob your family of the protection they deserve and need. When you immerse yourself in sin to any degree. We never sin alone. We never sin alone. Impurity or profanity in sexual things is robbery. It defrauds someone in your life because you never sin alone. When a woman gives her emotional energy to another man, she defrauds her husband. When she enjoys the scenes in a romance novel and lives those and, and exacts those demands on her husband, she robs her husband. She defrauds. And number four is in verse seven. For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Personal holiness is God's goal. This afternoon I can speak with the authority of God's word. There is not a person sitting here this afternoon except unaccountable children that are here. There is not a person here whose will, the, the, the will of God for your life is personal holiness. And I'm pretty sure I can say this, that all of us need a little bit of push sometimes to raise the standard. To raise the standard. <clears throat> I want to give you six keys to living in purity. <clears throat> 
Remember, this purity thing is not just to protect our virginity or the virginity of our daughters and our sons and our own virginity, but it, it, even though it is that, it is we are in an eternal warfare for the souls of your and my children and your and my souls. And one of the devil's primary tactics is to destroy us through our hungers and this sexual expression. He has done it to the world that's heading for hell faster than you can than you can count every day. He has done it. That's one of his main main weapons out there. We are in a spiritual battle, brothers and sisters, and the souls of our children are at stake and our own souls as well. Number one, the number one key is to think sacred. Let me illustrate this by a by a young man who, who called me some weeks or some months ago, and he was concerned about things that were going on between couples in his community. And he shared what these things were. And I thought to myself, why is this young man calling me, who has some moral problems himself, why is he calling me about the couples? But I, I, I answered his questions, and we kind of had this discussion that just, I didn't go any deeper than what his questions demanded. But then I asked the question, why are you concerned about this? Why not let the couples take care of their own problems or their own things? He didn't really know why not. He said, well, he kind of, he kind of agreed that, yes, maybe that's a good idea. So I thought the case was closed. His second phone call was a little more intense. Words something like this. Marvin, why can't I understand this? Why do they have to be so secretive about it? Why can't I understand childbirth and, and the things that go on around childbirth? Why can't I understand that? What, what's keeping me from understanding it? And I said, well, do you have a need for it? Do you want to understand it? Well, yeah. Why, why, just why, why can't I understand it? He had other questions about birth control and the morality of that. For a single man, he asked a lot of vexing questions. We hung up and he called the third time. Some weeks later... And he was really frustrated this time. I think this was the question behind it all. This is how he framed the question. Marvin, if sexual things are dirty, and all of my flags went up, who said sexual things are dirty? If sexual things are dirty, how will I ever get married if I daren't even think about a girl? And I said, who said you daren't think about a girl? Well, it's... Immoral, it's dirty. And then all of a sudden I realized I've been failing this person. And I, I, I took a deep breath and talked to him about human sexuality and the sacredness of it. I did not go into the nuts and bolts of it. I, I, I talked to him. I think I talked an hour and he was very, very silent during that hour. And I talked to him about the sacredness of human sexuality. And after I was done, I said this way, I said his name, then I said, When you pursue a girl in a sanctified manner, you are honoring God. And he said, I can't believe that. I can't believe that. I can't believe that. Why can't he believe that? Let me answer that question. He can't believe that because he grew up in a society, in a church, in a community that treated sexual things dirty. Whether it was animals or humans, whatever it was, it was dirty. It was not to be talked about. 
It was not to be discussed. His dad never told him, talked to him about masturbation and about growing up and about, about girls and all of this because it was dirty. Why would a husband, why would a, why would a man and his boy talk about things that are dirty? Because we're not supposed to talk about things that are dirty. Now I know this young man's experience exaggerates most of yours and ours and mine. But still, there's usually an ingredient that profanes the sacred. And I want to take a pretty firm bulldozer, rev the engine, and put the blade down and push profanity out that door by telling you why sexual things are sacred. Why they're sacred. There are marriages that don't know that sexual things are sacred. There are men who look at sexual things like animals. That is not holding sexual things sacred. There's a horrible irony that I want to expose at this point. I have it written down like this, where there is the most silence about it. The language and the morals are the worst. Where it's the most silent, the silence about it. Now that has a tipping point. It's true. The world is awash with their with their um, with their brand of promiscuity. I'm not I'm not defending that. Let them go. Let them for now. Let them go where they are. I'm worried. I'm concerned about the church this afternoon holding sexual things sacred. I'm concerned about you as husband and wife as you as you uh, come together as you live together that you hold sexual things ho holy. Let me give you six things very quickly. Intimacy is for procreation. What did God say in Genesis 2? Be fruitful and multiply the earth. You don't do that by lesbians and homosexuality, do you? You do that by a husband and wife and intimacy. It is God's design. Number two. Here's something I'd like to impress on you. I'd like to, for you to explore this further than I have. And to live this out better than I have, especially you young couples. In intimacy as well as in the rest of your marriage, you are allowed to, or God is allowed to paint the picture of Christ and the church onto your marriage. I believe that's what Paul says when he, when, when he speaks about it in Ephesians 5. He gets done with his discussion on the husband being, being loving the wife and the, and the wife submitting to the husband. And then he says, this is a great mystery. But I speak of Christ and the church. I think there's a sense in which the, the love that is poured out from the husband to the wife, I think there's a sense in which God says, yes, there they get this, the world gets to see Christ again. And when the, when the wife responds in submission and, and res, responds to the, the husband, I think God says, yes, there's my picture of the church responding to Jesus Christ in obedience and submission. We actually get to do that. Not just in intimacy, in all of our life, but in intimacy as well. And I could scratch the paint off the wall telling you how, but that's not the, that's not the, uh, that's not what I, what I intend to do. Number three, it is God's design. Remember your children. There's hormones flowing, will begin flowing your, through your children at a certain age. That's simply God's design. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It has to be kept within very high fences. And small, small rooms. You can't spread the whole thing over. 
You have to keep it sacred, but it's beautiful when it's sacred. Number four, it's an expression of love. Number five, it's a, it's a bonding. It brings bonding. Intimacy is bonding. Number six, it's for human pleasure. Let me just be flat out honest with you. God created it for human pleasure. He didn't create it for promiscuity. He didn't create it to be, be profaned. He created for it to be very, very sacred between husband and wife and to be pleasurable for both, equally for both. That's something us Amish and Mennonites haven't done very good at either. But I'm not going to talk about that right now. How do we profane? Perversions, sexual perversions, even within the boundaries of marriage. And I'm embarrassed even to say it, so I won't. But even within the boundaries of marriage, there are sexual perversions going on in our world that profane the sacredness of intimacy. Animal ideas. Using intimacy for our control mechanism. Joking about it. An overemphasis on intimacy, on sexual things, is profaning the sacred. And the pleasure of one marriage partner only is profaning it as well. So the first key is think sacred. Think sacred about intimacy. The second key is establish clear boundaries. The Bible says, abstain from all evil. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Even if you don't intend evil, it could appear evil. Stay away. Stay away. Men, have firm boundaries between you and someone who isn't your wife. Whether it's a driver or a secretary or a co-worker or a or a whoever have firm firm boundaries women sisters have firm boundaries with anyone who isn't your husband women can so easily um, give their give off emotional energy to another man in a way that creates stimulation inside her and you rarely know it it's it's the counterpart of lust in a man you don't know it. You can't see it. At least to begin with, you can't. But have clear boundaries and keep your emotional energy, your, your uh, responses, your, your um, respect, your reverence to your husband. For your husband only. Draw clear boundaries. Youth. I think there's some youth in here this morning, this afternoon. Please keep... Clear sexual boundaries. If you get to be 30, 40 years old, you will thank me this morning for telling you, for taking the, the, the risk of telling you, you should have a hands-off courtship. You should not touch your, your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, for that matter, till you are married. You should have hands-off courtship, pure courtships. You will thank me a thousand times if you, if you get married. And you have done so. Establish clear boundaries. Girls, don't wear provocative dress, especially at home or even at home with nightwear. Draw clear boundaries. Clear boundaries with technology and things like that are important as well. I'll leave that. But think sacred. Establish clear boundaries. Number three is insist on emotional, emotional purity. Thank you. 
God has given us the capacity. I can sit beside Delmer, right? I can sit beside Delmer and he can be weeping for a loss that he has had that I have not had. And I, I can emotionally enter his world and weep with him. That's what the Bible means by weep with them that weep and rejoice with them that rejoice. I can enter emotionally his life and cry with his loss as if it or close to as if it were my own. That's the power of being emotionally connected. Now, that has a bad counterpart as well. The counterpart of that is when the devil hijacks your emotional capacity for his purposes. Remember the plane that flew into the World Trade Center? It was not it didn't take off headed for the World Trade Center. The pilots never intended to fly to the World Trade Center. But that's what happened. Why? Because the devil hijacked it. That's the way it is with our emotions. God intends for our emotions to be useful in his kingdom, to be wonderful ways that you and I can walk beside somebody and cry with them and weep with them, rejoice with them and laugh with them and all of those things. But the devil uses that capacity as well and hijacks us. Insist on emotional purity. Romance books, I've mentioned them for I've mentioned them before. But I'll mention it again. If you are reading romance books at this point, and you have not repented of that, and cast those things into a furnace and gotten rid of, uh, rid of your home of that, you are sacrificing the intimacy of your marriage on that altar. Is it worth it? Well, you say, you say, my husband doesn't understand me. My husband doesn't, you don't know my husband. That's right, I don't. But I know your heart if you're reading romance books. You're fantasizing about things in your mind that your husband can never, ever meet. He can never meet the, the qualifications of a good husband in a storybook. It destroys your marriage. It's the same thing with lust. Lust is emotional impurity. A man can think of something, can think of a woman in, a, in an adulterous, ugly, sinful manner. And nobody knows. Right? Nobody knows. Except God and your wife. She knows. She knows when you're not faithful with your emotions. When you let your mind wander. Let me ask you men to cons consider the four second rule. You and I are confronted with images. I'm not going to beat around the bush. There's plenty of pornographic images. That would have been, or let me say this, that would have been pornographic 20, 30 years ago or 40, 50 years ago. But today they're commonplace. You walk by the Walmart counter just before the cashier. You have to guard your eyes. But if your eyes are confronted with something that you've got to deal with, remember the four second rule. 1001, 1002, 1003, 1004. If in that time you can deal with that sexual thought, it has been a temptation only. But if you don't deal with it in that time, you are guilty. But in a very, very, very uh, short time when you're confronted with, with it, you can reject it. You can deal with it. You can say, I'm not going there. My mind is not going there. I'm not letting my eyes wander that, wander to, there, to, to that. And you can call it a temptation only. 
insist on emotional purity. Number four is recognize the twin enemies of purity. I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I think it's relevant to our world this afternoon. Recognize the twin enemies of purity on a spiritual level. Amish and Mennonites are very well versed in what is worldly, what is the world. We would define the world as something outside the church. And to be 100% right, there is plenty of worldliness outside the church. But there's another world in John 7. When, John, when Jesus talks about the world in John 7, He's not talking about New York City or Los Angeles or Las Vegas. He's talking about the religious world in John 7. The religious world. There are twin enemies of the world. I'm only going to spend time on vain religion. And how that relates to sexual perversion. I'm going to try to make a connection between vain religion and sexual perversion. And if I'm successful, if I can do this correctly, you will never look at vain religion the same again. Let, let me call it vain religious orthodoxy. Let, let, me, let me define it a few ways. One is will worship, like Colossians 2, the last verse says. I won't quote it, but let me, let me tell you what will worship is. Will worship is to, to, to cause by the force of your will to have your body go through a worship experience that your heart does not feel. Monotonous repetition that damns the soul. That is will worship. That is vain religious orthodoxy. Hypocrisy, the esteem of men. I always say that if hypocrisy were a motor, the esteem of men would be the gas and the fear of men would be the oil. You take, all, you take any of those away, hypocrisy falls flat on its face. And meaningless rote, meaningless rote is, defines vain religious orthodoxy. The outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is full of dead men's bones. Vain religious orthodoxy is a seedbed for sexual perversion. Let me tell you why. I have six reasons. The hungers of the soul are never met. The hungers of the soul are never met. There's a mind-numbing dullness that goes with vain religion that causes people not to feel and not to think. We have to survive this worship service. Our heart is never really into it. We have to simply survive it. We are never fed spiritually. So we look for ways to satisfy spiritual hungers with another hunger. And that is the hunger for intimacy. The hunger for intimacy. And the devil knows that. He knows that if our, if our, if our religious experience is vain, it's monotonous, it's rote, and we don't really enjoy it, we're not really there with all of our hearts, he knows how to capture us. Keep him there for the next year and a half or two years, and I'll set sexual perversion in front of him. His hungers will be, I'll catch him off guard with his hunger for intimacy, and he'll fall. That is why vain religious orthodoxy is a seedbed for perversion, sexual perversion. Number two is fear, shame, and guilt are used to control. Fear, shame, and guilt are used to control. 
And the person underneath that fear, shame, and guilt says, Oh, well, if I can't live right anyway, I may as well enjoy it, the, the journey. If I can't live right anyway. Because from dad and mom and from the preachers comes a regular diet of fear, shame, and guilt. Number three, an overemphasis on externals and a corresponding emphasis on internals. Keep the outside of the cup absolutely clean. Keep it absolutely uh, spotless. But let the inside of the cup go to hell if you want to. That's what the Pharisees did. What Jesus was talking about with the Pharisees in, in Matthew 23. You spend all this time shining the outside of the cup. Making sure it looks exactly right. But you have forgotten that Christianity, religion is not the outside first. It is the inside first. Clean up the inside. An overemphasis on the externals and a corresponding underemphasis on the internal. And if the inside feels dirty, brothers and sisters, it just makes sense to fall into sexual perversion because I'm dirty anyway. I have no, I have no limits on being more dirty if I'm dirty anyway. Number four is cover up is a natural response. Ye devour widows' houses, Jesus said in John 23, ye devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. Well, all, of the, all that is saying in today's language is you go through a spiritual exercise. No, you, you sin and then you go through a spiritual exercise to cover the thing up. That's what he's talking about. Cover up is a natural response. Remember this, sin must stay covered to survive. Once it is manifest, once it comes to the light, it can no longer survive. Number five, culture trumps truth. Culture trumps truth. Let me read you the first page of a letter that's six or eight pages long that comes from a vain religious orthodoxy. That is a seedbed for sexual perversion. I'll read one paragraph out of six pages. He is, this young man is taking a stand against sleeping with his girlfriend as, as they're dating. A few weeks later, they approached me with the same questions. Was it true that Iva and I weren't sleeping together? If not, why not? I explained that sleeping with her made me feel guilty. And I could do it, I couldn't do it since it violated my conscience and the word of God. The bishop admonished me to do as our forefathers thought proper and said he feels that they saw something good in bed courtship or they would never have allowed it. He asked me to change my view and I asked for some time to think about it. That paragraph is horribly vexing. But that paragraph tells you why I believe with all of my heart that vain religious orthodoxy is a seedbed for sexual perversion. And bed courtship is a sexual perversion. Because culture and tradition trumps truth. It trumps truth. Number six. Hypocrisy fueled by esteem of men and fear of men robs men of power to work against evil. Let me read this letter. I got this letter in the mail just last week or week before. Presently, I, or, uh, recently I became aware of an Amish man that was very strict in the ordinance, 
wrote articles for Harold Dervorheit and Pathway, and yet he was sexually molesting all seven of his daughters. This went on for years and years and years. He was the bishop's pet, and even after the bishop knew he had a problem and confessed it, that bishop did not put a stop to it. Then he writes these words. I want these words of the Holy Spirit to impress these words on your heart this afternoon. He wrote these three words. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. And on the back he says this was going on for years, on years ago, like 25 to 45 years ago. And both the bishop and this man have been buried in the past year and a half. But the scars remain. And then he writes, sad, sad, sad. Surely we can expect 200 men and women in one room to make a commitment that culture will not trump truth. We can make a commitment that the esteem of men will not, it is not powerful enough to make us do these things and wink at them year after year after year after year. Surely. If vain religious orthodoxy is clung to, sexual promiscuity will be the birthright of our children. Let me repeat that in case you wonder if I said that. Vain religious orthodoxy. Vain religious orthodoxy. If, if clung to. If vain religious orthodoxy is clung to, it will be our children's sexual promiscuity, sexual perversion will be our children's birthright. Key number five. Restore the family altar. You remember Elijah. You remember him meeting the prophets of Baal. You remember him approaching that broken down altar on Mount Carmel where they met. And the Bible says the altar of God was broken down. There was weeds growing. The stones had fallen apart. The thing was unfit to offer sacrifice. And Elijah fixed it before he sacrificed. I'd like to encourage the dads this way. I don't know where you stand with, with, with the, your family altar. But let me say this. I don't care where you stand. Let's stand together this afternoon as men and say to each other, let's help each other establish a family altar that where we sing together, we pray together, and we, we read God's Word together. And we nourish our children in spiritual things. Let's become committed to that, that there's no schedule. There's no... There's no debt. There's no financial wherewithal that can make us skip the thing. Let's rebuild the fire of the family altar. Let's rebuild it. You sisters can, mothers, moms can help. My wife likes to sing. She's good at singing. I'm not. So in family devotions, I depend on her for singing. She's the one that, that pushes for that. And I'm glad for that. She's not, she's not somehow being insubmissive or anything like that. She's helping me. She's helping me get the fire of the family altar to keep it hot and keep it going. A healthy environment in which children are respected and treated with sensitivity and compassion rarely produces abuse. It is impossible. It is impossible to abuse somebody you love. It is impossible. You won't do it. A healthy environment in which children are respected and treated with sensitivity and compassion rarely produces abuse. 
it is impossible to abuse someone you love. I'd like to say this way. We live in a world that we think love is the most, the most powerful thing in the world, and it is powerful. I admit that. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. But let me say this. In worship, in, in either in corporate worship or in family worship, all of our loves, all of the, all of the, the, the feelings inside can be channeled into one thing up to God. And that's what He wants. He wants holy men and women. He wants holy boys and girls and children to raise their voice in song, to have an altar every day. Let's be men and women of God and raise the family altar and make it burn bright. In conclusion, when I think of the great need for purity today, let me say this, tradition and culture won't do it. Won't do it. I have a high respect for an Amish and Mennonite heritage. But let me say this, that the power of Jesus Christ, it'll take the power of Jesus Christ. The law may come in. The law may put the perpetrator in jail. But the law will never change the human heart. I believe, I stand among ministers and among bro fellow brothers and sisters this afternoon and young people this afternoon who will repent of things that we've done wrong in the area of sexual purity. I believe that I'm among people that will get a hold of this and say, we will change no matter what the cost. We've had too much of it. And while I'm at it, let me say this. One girl, a victim of sexual abuse in the next hundred years, in Amish and Mennonite churches, is one girl too much before God. One girl too many. I believe that I'm among dads that will pick up their Bibles, and moms that will pick up their songbooks, and they will, they will read the Word of God to their children and tell them what it means. They'll tell them that God loves them, They'll tell when the wiles of the devil, when the arrows of the evil one, when the snares of the wicked one come, those children will say, I remember dad saying that God loves me and I won't go back on that. They'll remember mom saying that Jesus died for you, that he loves you, that, that we want to do right and we want to serve him. And they'll do it when they're big, when they're older. I believe I'm, I'm among sisters who know how to pray. I want to tell you, sisters here this afternoon, mothers here, so much of, 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 of this hangs on you. And I want to encourage you to pray and pray and pray. I tell Miriam this way, if you pray for me, I can pray for the people I minister to. I don't need to pray for myself then. Not that I don't need it, I do. But moms, pray for your dad. Pray, pray for the, your, the, your, your husband and the, the dad of your children. You can make an eternal difference in the life of your family, in the life of your church, in the life of your community, simply on your knees, asking God to help protect your children and to help your husband lead out in the home. I wonder how many men, well, let me remind you, sisters, you married a boy on the day you were married. He was a boy. He becomes a man partly by the influence of your, by your influence. 
Use all the influence you have. Use all the influence you can to create a godly home and a godly husband. That is the biggest, the most powerful weapon against sexual abuse. I don't want us to start tomorrow. I want us to start today. I don't want to, I want, I don't want to push this thing off till next week or next year or after communion or after this or after that. I want us to start today. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day all the daughters of Zion will come to the altar of Jesus Christ when they become born again. And they can lay their hands out on the altar of Jesus Christ and say, I am here. I have kept my body pure for you. My parents have done their job. My grandpas have done their job. My church has done their job. My community has done their job. And I have taken personal responsibility and I'm here to present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in service to you, Jesus Christ. And I see it one step further. And that is the daughters of Zion can come to the marriage altar and they can say to their, they can say to their, their husband on their wedding night, I have kept myself pure for this moment. My parents did their job. My ministers did their job. My church did their job. And I have kept myself morally and physically and sexually and spiritually pure for you. For that I am here. And for that I stand. May God bless you.